Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, all things Dominic Dunn. Today, we are taking a trip back into the wartime 1940s for the scandal that rocked cafe society at the time. If you are not familiar with the terrible and tragic murder of Patricia Burton Lonergan at the hands of her husband, Wayne Lonergan, with an actual candlestick, I will use Dominic's own introduction from his July 2000 write-up from Vanity Fair on this case. A young, attractive socialite, Patricia Lonergan, is found naked in her bedroom, bludgeoned and strangled to death. The accused, her wildly handsome, devastatingly charming husband, Wayne, a fortune hunter, whose lurid alibi shocks even New York's toughest police officers and tabloid reporters. The murder and the subsequent trial were the media sensation of 1943 and 44, played out against the Cafe Society backdrop of the Stork Club and El Morocco. Dominic Dunn spins a rich tale of infidelity, decadence, and scandal, from Wayne's affair with Patsy's father, to his elopement with the young heiress, to the struggle over her inheritance and their infant son. What? Whoa! What a lead-in, right? The article Dunn writes for Vanity Fair is titled The Talented Mr. Lonergan. You can also find this article published under the title of The Gigolo, the Heiress, and the Candlestick from his book release called Justice. All sources used in this story, just like every other Dunn and Dunn story, are available at dunnanddunn.com if you would like to do any further research. So how does this couple, a society girl and a gigolo, get from an elopement to a grisly murder in less than two years? Let's investigate. Let's go ahead and meet our gigolo Wayne. He's a middle-class kid from outside Toronto, Canada. He's schooled by the nuns in a parochial school. Wayne will attend St. Peter's Roman Catholic Church. Little bit of a troubled history, though. Wayne's mother will make multiple visits to the Ontario Mental Hospital, which is tough on Wayne and tough on his siblings, too. Wayne's aunt, who becomes sort of the family spokesperson, will say that Wayne was a fine boy but only fell into trouble once he goes to New York City in 1938. Which he does, right in time for the World's Fair, to be held in 1939. Wayne at the time is working as what is known as a chair pusher. Wayne pushes folks around that might not be up for walking around the whole event. During the closed months of the World's Fair, Wayne is going to go ahead and get another gig, selling ties at Abercrombie and Fitch, and, well... Dominic Dunn will write about Wayne. He was one of those kind of young men in New York who liked to be taken care of, and he had the kind of looks, swagger, and charm that could ensure that he was. Charm is the key word here. There is not a person who remembers him who does not speak of his charm. He had an innate ability to make himself agreeable. He liked girls, and he liked guys. Rich girls and rich guys. And he was available under the right circumstances. The circumstance that arises is the meeting of Wayne and William O. Burton. Now, Wayne is chair pushing, 
William O. around in a rented rattan chair on wheels. And the thing you need to know about chair pushers, they get hired for their looks, for their charm, for their physical physique, for their handsomeness. Wayne is six feet, three inches tall. He's handsome. He's built. He's wearing khaki shorts and a white shirt that's rolled up to the elbows and a pith helmet. And William O. Burton likes the look a lot. See, William Burton, the father of our fair Patricia, who will soon be wife of Wayne, William Burton is heir to a brewery fortune. Looking at that time somewhere in the range of $7 million, at the time of Dominic Dunn writing about this case, that amount was about $70 million translated. Today, my calculation is even higher, about $150 million or so. Now, William is going to get married to a lady named Lucille. She's known as Lou. And William's cash allows them to lead a lifestyle that just isn't common. They live abroad as expatriates, and the Burtons are neighbors with W. Somerset Mom in the south of France. Their villa there is quite lovely. The Burtons also have a pretty nice yacht, and William will paint portraits in his spare time, and times are pretty good, but the couple's relationship is not really all that good. William and Lou don't really like each other. Also, probably because William's mostly gay. See, it's not painting that is William's passion. It is mostly trolling for young dudes. And well, after Wayne and William meet at the World's Fair, Wayne Lonergan becomes William's constant companion and is very well compensated for doing so. William will take a suite at the Ritz Tower on Park Avenue and 57th because, well, Lou wants a divorce. And at that suite at the Ritz Tower, Wayne is often there. Lou's not happy. Lou will file for divorce, charging cruelty, saying that William threw a suitcase at her in San Sebastian, threw her down a staircase in Paris, knocked her against a stone wall as well. It's terrible. The Burton's marriage, though, does produce a child, Patricia. Patsy, she is called. But Patsy and her nanny live outside the villa in a guest house, decorated especially for her, but Patsy doesn't go in their villa. Patsy kind of has a sad childhood, rich and privileged for sure, but not exactly filled with the things that a child may really need. This is done writing about poor Patsy's childhood. A Palm Beach Society lady who wishes not to be named remembers Patsy from those childhood days in the south of France. We lived in Cannes and the Burtons lived in the Mugans. The Burtons were out so much, never home. You probably heard the father was gay. Patsy and I were about the same age, and we used to play together. She was an only child. She was very nice, but extremely spoiled. One time she showed me her jewelry. She was about 12 or 13 at the time. It was incredible that a child should have that much jewelry. Dominic Dunn is also going to interview another high society source in his investigation on this case, and the following is such delicious writing I'm going to use bits and pieces here to tell you about another young girl that Wayne encounters. This is before Patricia meets Wayne, but it may lay out the picture of some of the charm that Wayne has, as well as his access to important people. Dominic writes, One problem with writing about the very rich or the truly swell is that they never want their names used, as the lady in the following story does not. 
She happens to be a member of what is arguably America's grandest family, whose ancestors were the kind of people Edith Wharton wrote novels about. But you'd have to know that about her. She wouldn't bring it up. Too classy. We met at her apartment on Fifth Avenue, wearing an enormous John Singer Sargent-style portrait of one of those ancestors hangs in the front hall. We had tea and cookies, served by a maid. My hostess has about her an old-fashioned elegance that has gone out of style but is still very stylish. I could hardly believe that she had ever been acquainted with Wayne Lonergan. Is it true that you knew him, I asked? Darling, I went to bed with him, she replied forthrightly, and most unexpectedly. I knew him in the biblical sense. When we stopped laughing, she gave me some details. She had been only 14 and a student at Brerley, the private school in New York for girls of the highest caliber. On several occasions, she invited him out to her family's estate on Long Island, where they had picnics on the beach and took long buggy rides. I remember making the fire and the fireflies, and my brother, whom I called to say I was meeting with you, reminded me that he cooked steaks on the grill. Wayne was easy to be with and so sophisticated. The word for him is smooth. He took me to the stork club, and he was such a good dancer. All those teenage boys I knew were so boring and terrible and only talked about ice hockey at St. Paul's. Wayne was playful and fun. How would a person from such a rarefied world as you grew up in ever get to meet a person like Wayne Lonergan, I asked. I met him through Henry Barclay, an older man, she replied. I haven't a clue what happened to Henry. Probably dead. If he's alive, he'd be very old now. After the murder, my father was absolutely disgusted that I knew Wayne Lonergan. He was told that I'd better be taken out of the state during the trial or I might be called as a witness. I was whisked out of Brerley and sent to Sea Island, Georgia, during the trial. What was Wayne like in bed, I asked, expecting to be shown the door, but the lady was not affronted. Oh, goodness, I hardly remember, she replied, smiling. I think we only did it once. I think he probably liked it better the other way. Wayne probably does like it better the other way, because Wayne and William, right, carrying on and Lou William's wife is in the process of a divorce, and here it is Daddy William that brings together his daughter Patricia with her future husband. William Burton will pass away before their nuptials, which we will get to, but first, I need to tell you how on earth Patsy ends up with Wayne, and it is his charm and access. You just heard something from that secret socialite just now that becomes enormous in the story, and that is a place called the Stork Club. So there is a particular night where William invites Wayne to a dinner party in the dining room of the Ritz Hotel, where Wayne is seated next to a teenage Patricia. And Patricia, pretty worldly already, she knows about her dad. Fine, there's nothing unusual here. I'm seated next to dad's boyfriend. But Patsy has one thing that she wants in her life really, really bad, and that is to go to the Stork Club, and this is how it all begins. Now, I need to let you know the Stork Club is a big deal. It is the scene. It is located at 3 East 53rd Street for the longest part of its three-decade stretch. And if you are in New York City in between 1930 and 1960, you want to be at the Stork Club. It's Cafe Society at its pinnacle. 
The Stork Club holds a huge place in the cultural imagination, not just of New Yorkers, but people domestically within the United States and people internationally, too. To try to describe this, I want to read this quote to you. Uh, There is a social commentator and writer named Lucius Beebe who releases a book in 1946 called The Stork Club Bar Book, and he writes just a little bit about the impact of this club. To millions and millions of people all over the world, the Stork Club symbolizes and epitomizes the deluxe upholstery of quintessentially urban existence. It means fame. It means wealth. It means an elegant way of life among celebrated folk. The Stork is the dream of suburbia, a shrine of sophistication in the minds of countless thousands who have never seen it. The fabric and the pattern of legend. One of the reasons it uh, becomes so famous, just one, Walter Winchell, America's favorite gossip columnist, his own personal hangout is Table 50 at the Stork Club. It is the most famous table in America. Lucius Beebe mentions that upholstery because the upholstery from the Stork Club is famous. Walter Winchell is getting maybe your picture snapped at his table with that famous upholstery in the background. In return for all this publicity, Walter will get free tabs, dinner, and drinks for the duration of his time gossiping about the club. Everybody comes to see him. Jim Farley, J. Edgar Hoover, Damon Runyon, the Roosevelt Boys, press agents come, starlets from the movies, from music, from Broadway, actors, actresses, doesn't matter. His table is the hot table. You want to be written up. The VIP section of the Stork Club for a time is this new addition they build called the Cub Room. The only guy allowed to smoke a pipe in the Cub Room for a time is Bing Crosby. The Stork Club altogether holds about a thousand people at capacity. And its owner, Sherman Billingsley, is generous, not only with the people who will give him publicity, but with patrons too. To every lady that enters, he will give a corsage and perfume. Y'all, this is the official perfume of the Stork Club, little vials of it. But they do bottle it and sell it as well. So you can go to your store in Rando Town, any state, and buy the same perfume that they're using at the Stork Club. It's a whole scene. Sherman Billingsley will give cases of champagne every Christmas to his most dedicated patrons. He also does this thing within the dance area with balloons. His balloon drops are famous. At some point in the night, all these balloons that have been caught up in this net drop down and ladies go bonzo for the balloon drop. In each balloon, there's a slip of paper. Maybe you've won a bottle of that famous perfume. Maybe you've won a case of champagne. Maybe if you get a really lucky balloon, it's a $100 bill slipped in as opposed to a piece of paper. I mention the balloon drop now because this is only going to be its first appearance from the Stork Club in our season two narrative. We're going to be investigating the Stork Club as well as some other New York hotspots throughout the coming months. Dipping back within our narrative today, let's get back to that dinner party. So at this dinner party, Patricia will tell Wayne about her desperation, her hope beyond hope, her biggest dream ever to go to the Stork Club. 
She's telling Wayne this story that finally one day she broke her daddy down to take her to the stork club. And William overdresses in white tie and tails, not black tie, which you need to be in to get into the stork club. And sadly, Patsy and her dad do not make it through that gold chain and the maitre d' who determined entry into the club. This is early Studio 54, right? They got it from somewhere. So his broken-hearted teenage Patsy is at this dinner explaining how terribly mortifying it was for her that Daddy wore the wrong suit and all I want to do is go to the stork club and get a vial of that perfume. It is right then and there that Wayne takes her hand and leads Patsy away from the dinner table and it is to the stork club they go where the haughty maitre d' at the door says, Good evening, Mr. Lonergan, and up that gold chain goes. They drink, they dance. Patsy is starry-eyed and probably smelling good with that perfume. Now, Mama Lou, remember her, in no way approves of this match. Wayne Lonergan is the reason that Lou is divorcing. Like, really? My daughter's going to date my ex-husband's boyfriend? What is this, a Greek tragedy? Lou tries to convince her daughter Patsy to have her society debut in New York and just forget all about that boy. How about to forget him, Patsy? I take you on a real nice vacation to Santa Barbara. We'll go to the West Coast, maybe meet some new eligible men, which they do, to be promptly followed by Wayne, who heads out to the West Coast, And once reunited, Patsy and Wayne are off to Las Vegas for a quickie wedding that occurs July 30th, 1941. Patsy at the time is sitting on a trust of about $200,000, but Patsy is also in line to inherit an enormous fortune after the death of her grandmother. The wedding does make a few headlines, but Patsy, not even fluffled about the headlines, (laughs) Patsy will say, If he was good enough for my father, he's good enough for me. Patsy and Wayne quickly set up home in an apartment at 983 Park Avenue. They have a butler, a cook, a laundress, and soon enough, a baby, Wayne Jr. The baby will have a nurse, her name is Elizabeth Black, who really gives the kid everything essentially because mom and dad are partying. It is nightclub city every night. I mean, for sure. The day is for playing cards, bridge and gin rummy, maybe some tennis, maybe some golf, whatever, but the night times are for parties and sex too and fighting too. It is a stormy marriage from the beginning. Friends will say that Wayne and Patsy fought like cats and dogs, even from the honeymoon. In public, often and loudly, Patricia thinks nothing of chastising Wayne, always reminding him that Patsy had really married beneath her. It is a weird dynamic between these two. But Wayne, who does like being kept, is pretty okay with taking this verbal abuse as long as he had access to his wife's fortune. But soon, Patsy is really not too cool with footing his bills. And she's been to the stork club now a few times. She's an heiress in her own right and will begin complaining to friends about paying for Wayne's lifestyle especially when Wayne wasn't all that great of a husband, if you can imagine that. Wayne always has more than a little action on the side. 
Patsy and Wayne are players in this cafe society set, but maybe Patricia, you know, kind of early on is thinking that all of this is not going in a way that is working out for her, and maybe it's time to make some moves. This is 1942, y'all, and there's a war going on. So the natural question is, why isn't Wayne fighting in the war like every other eligible male is for the country? Turns out old Wayne was called twice to go into the army, but in fact was turned down each time for his homosexuality. By 1943, Patsy's done. She wants out. Now, Wayne is not so agreeable with this arrangement because his wife is about to come into $7 million and Wayne does not want those dollars to go away. The couple will separate in July of 1943 a scant two years after that quickie wedding in Las Vegas. Patsy, young, rich, is really making the most out of her separation. Every moment in her social calendar is booked. She is out every night in the clubs, maybe playing tennis during the day if she wakes up. Depends on how late she was out at the clubs the night before. Wayne, for his part, is still not wanting a divorce and decides to return to Canada and join the Royal Canadian Air Force, keeping the homosexual part quiet this time. But Wayne does this thinking if he becomes kind of a stand-up guy, Patricia will in fact stay with him. It works well enough for Patricia to wait. She says she'll wait until after the war to finalize the divorce, but is still pretty committed to it happening. Both Wayne and Patsy agree they can see whoever they want, and that is that. Except, Patsy changes her will. Wayne will no longer have any part in her estate, and instead, her new will will name her son, Wayne Jr., as the beneficiary. Now, Patsy in her dating life is kind of seeing some sleazy people. There's this count who's not a count. He's kind of a fake count, but she's slung up with him. But one night at the Stork Club... Patsy's going to meet a proper sort of man. His name is Peter Elser. He is a Harvard football star and a Marine officer, like exactly the right kind of guy. Patsy and Peter will make a date for the following Sunday, which will turn out to be the day of Patricia's murder. Now is a good time to take a break to hear from our sponsors this week. We'll be right back with the murder trial and aftermath of this Cafe Society crime. October 23rd, 1943 is a Saturday. This is the last night of Patsy's life, where Patsy will go to dinner with her sleazy, fake count boyfriend. But by all accounts, they and another couple make the rounds of nightclubs, dancing at the stork club until the last note is played. No one really wants to go home, so it is more drinks at someone's apartment. It's about 6.30 a.m. when the fake count boyfriend drops Patsy off where Dominic Dunn will write. She went straight to her bedroom, where she took off her mink jacket and a string of pearls and black dress and a girdle and bronze shoes and stockings and fell naked on top of the covers of her oversized Second Empire-style bed. She didn't check on her son, who was asleep in the next room with his nanny, Elizabeth Black. Black was a wonderful nanny, apparently, but she happened to be hard of hearing, so she was unaware of the violent scene in Patricia's room a few hours later. See, that same weekend, Wayne had been given a 48-hour pass, and Big Man is headed on down into the city. 
Patricia knows he's coming into town, but they have made no plans to see each other. Wayne, by this point, knows he's out of the will, although he will make a trip to FAO Schwartz to buy his son a stuffed elephant toy. Wayne is planning on staying at a friend's home, who is out of town, but that friend has a butler, so there is going to be some kind of weird alibi that tries to happen, but let me assure you, it is a farce. Wayne goes to the theater that Saturday night to see One Touch of Venus with a recently separated stage actress. Then the two go to the 21 Club for dinner and drinks, and then more drinks follow at the Blue Angel Club, and Wayne returns his date to her apartment about 4 a.m., kissing her and making plans for lunch at the plaza the following day, Sunday. This is where it gets a little sketchy. See, the butler is going to be called about 10 a.m. for some scrambled eggs, which are later found folded into a drawer. Wayne also conveniently has taken one of his friend's suits and left a little note saying, thanks for the use of your flat, and I've borrowed a suit from you. I'll return it when I get to Toronto. Wayne is not able to wear his uniform because it is bloodstained, because somewhere in the wee hours of that morning, Wayne made a visit to Patricia. Once he gets the borrowed suit, Wayne will head to the drugstore to get some Max Factor makeup to cover up the scratches on his face in order to keep his lunch date that day. His military uniform is shredded and tossed into the East River. Wayne, after lunch, will fly back to Toronto that evening. Now, Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon, no one is any the wiser about the scene at Patricia's home. It's not unusual for her to sleep most of the day when she stays out all night. There is a nanny watching the kid, nothing really to worry about. But Patsy does not emerge from her room that day at all. And Lou, Patsy's mom, knows that she has a date that night with Peter that she was really looking forward to. So mom will call Peter, who comes over and will remove the hinges from Patsy's locked door to reveal a gruesome scene. Dominic describes it this way. Sprawled on the bed was her naked body. There were signs of a terrific struggle in the blood-spattered room, and a trail of blood marked the path the murderer had taken through the other door out into the hall. Two bloody candlesticks were found on the bed. Bits of human flesh were found under Patricia's long, well-manicured fingernails, apparently scratched from her attacker's body as she fought for her life. Soon enough, New York's finest detectives are on the scene, and quickly they realize robbery is not the motive. The girl who has always liked jewelry has 14 rings in the room, all set with emeralds, jade, rubies, and diamonds. There are seven bracelets, seven dress pins, seven pairs of earrings, as well as two strings of large pearls. The fake Count boyfriend is immediately investigated, and Cleared, albeit after a pretty rough night, a little personal bit from Dominic Dunn here about the impact this case had on him and his life. He will write, There may have been a war raging in Europe and the Pacific, but four days the Lonergan case hogged the front pages. Money, looks, and sex had the same mesmerizing effect on the public 50 years ago as they do today. I was a teenager in boarding school at that time, and I remember risking expulsion every afternoon by sneaking into the town of New Milford, Connecticut during sports period to read the latest accounts in the New York Daily Mirror and the New York Journal American at the local drugstore. This 
case, this murder, the scandal is front page news every day. One of those famous lines that Dominic will read in his teenage boyhood self sneaking into town is from the New York Journal American, who will write about the murder on October 29th, about a week after it happens. Quote, Throughout the pattern of the Lonergan murder case are woven the deep purple threads of whispered vices whose details are unprintable and whose character is generally unknown to or misunderstood by the average normal person. Wayne Lonergan was taken into custody by the Toronto police the day after his wife's body was found. A Captain Mulholland was quoted as saying, We picked up Lonergan in the apartment of a friend on Bloor Street. He admitted being in New York Sunday and said he took the 7.30 plane out, arriving back in Toronto at 11.30. He had scratches on his face and neck. It looked as if he had been in some kind of a scrape. Wayne is going to be held in the Toronto jail for about 55 hours before being turned over to the New York assistant district attorney and a couple of detectives for the journey back. He was taken off the train in Fort Erie for failure to have proper papers to cross the border. The whole motley crew then flies from Buffalo to New York City. There is press waiting upon Wayne's arrival back in New York, and he will smile and wave at the photographers and claim, I had nothing to do with Pat's murder, absolutely nothing. I want to be at her funeral, and I want to see our baby. Wayne does not get to Patricia's funeral. Patricia had already been buried by her mother in a private ceremony. Lou Burton doesn't need to wait for a jury to tell her that Wayne, her son-in-law, is her daughter's murderer. Wayne does not get to see his child either. Wayne Jr. is put into the custody of his grandmother, and in time, his name will be changed legally from Wayne Lonergan Jr. to William Anthony Burton. Okay, so Wayne's just going to lie, inventively and apparently without embarrassment, Dominic writes. The alibi that Wayne will give for his whereabouts at the time of his wife's murder was so audacious that the Toronto police at first believed him. A guilty man would never offer an alibi so degrading, one officer said to the press. In New York, even the most hardened cops were shocked by his salacious story. They passed it on to the reporters of the tabloid pages who ran with the lurid lies, keeping the story on the front pages. Sid Boehm, a reporter for the New York Journal American, wrote, quote, He's lying. The only bit of truth in the whole story is that he admits he is a degenerate. Other newspapers describe him as depraved and sex-twisted, and one said that he gave boastful descriptions of his degeneracy. So Wayne, for his part, does try to come up with some sort of alibi. He will say he picked up an American soldier on the street at 4 o'clock in the morning and took him to that Upper East Side flat in which he was staying. And of course, the scratches were from this soldier who tried to rob him And the butler of the borrowed home is like, yeah, man, that didn't happen. There are numerous questioning sessions where Wayne will finally confess. Like for a long time, he really does stick to his lies. But once the police confront him with his alibi as fraudulent, as well as his fingerprints being on the candlesticks found in the bedroom where his wife's body had been discovered, Wayne will break down and confess in great detail. 
He will later say this is a coerced and false confession, but it rolls down something like this. Wayne said he had gone to Patricia's apartment at 8.45 on that Sunday morning. He knocked on her bedroom door and she let him in. Then she returned to her bed. In a statement leaked to the press, which did not quite match Lonergan's confession as it was read at the trial months later, he reported their conversation in a faux-Somerset mom manner. Lonergan, I understand you're the Belle of El Morocco. Patricia, your behavior hasn't been so good either. Lonergan, where's the baby? Patricia, the baby's in bed and don't disturb him. You'll have to come back later. Lonergan, I can't come back later. I have a lunch date with a girl. Patricia, why don't you have lunch with me? Lonergan, I can't. This is a previous date and I must keep it. Patricia, you know I'm amazed. I can't control my men friends anymore. As he turned away to get his overseas cap from the dresser, he said Patricia told him, you're not going to see the baby again, ever. I lost my head, Lonergan said. His baby was his only link to the fortune that was eluding him. He picked up a brass and onyx candlestick from the dresser and struck Patricia on the head with it. It broke, and he picked up the other of the pair and struck her again. She managed to get out of bed, fighting and kicking for her life. He grabbed her and choked her as she clawed at his face. He said he figured that it had taken several minutes, about three minutes, for her to die. He said he was horrified by the blood from her head all over the place and on his gloves and the front of his uniform. I don't know, I'll let y'all decide. It doesn't sound like that confession is too coerced. There is a trial, again, captivating the headlines. It attracts all kinds of looky-loos. People will line up each day to watch Wayne being brought from his cell in the tombs to the courthouse. Even Dorothy Kilgallen, reporter extraordinaire, covers the trial. I do love Dorothy Kilgallen. Dunwell Wright. She wrote in her column just before the trial began that Lonergan's lawyer, the prominent defense attorney Edward V. Broderick, intended to unfold the whole unsavory past of Bill Burton, the slain girl's father. Meaning that he was going to spill the beans on how a nice young man from Toronto had been seduced and debauched by a rich, dirty old man who happened to be the victim's father. Of Lonergan himself, Kilgallen wrote, Roman, even profile, big shoulders, long, white, beautiful hands. He looks like a college boy, probably a football player. He looks as little like a murderer as anyone in the courtroom. But no one is fooled by any of Wayne's act. He doesn't really show emotion during the trial. His defense flails, and after a 10-day trial, closing arguments are made. It is on March 31, 1944, after the jury deliberates for almost 10 hours, that a verdict of guilty of murder in the second degree is returned. An alternate juror will tell the reporters there is no question that Lonergan murdered his wife, but I think it's obvious that he did not premeditate it. I don't think he went to see his wife for the purpose of murdering her. I think he went to have an understanding with her. They got into an argument, and he simply lost his head. Wayne Lonergan was sentenced to 35 years to life in prison, and a crowd of, I don't know, four or 500 people gathered to see him get into the car that will take him from the tombs to his first prison sing-sing. 
The days of the Stork Club and the El Morocco are long behind him. He will continue to tell anyone who listens, this time to his probation officer, I did not murder my wife, I am innocent. The so-called confession was false. At Sing Sing, Wayne is assigned to a cell in the lifer's block. His mother-in-law, Lucille Burton, who announced that she would legally adopt the 22-month-old Lonergan baby, made it known that she considered the verdict too lenient. I thought it would be murder in the first degree, she'll tell the papers. In other words, she had wanted him to get the chair. Honestly, prison doesn't seem too terrible for Wayne. He's going to use his charm there, just like he did on the outside. He's got this celebrity cachet. He's kind of a high-profile killer among the inmates. Wayne doesn't work any hard labor. He's going to get cushy desk jobs in the mailroom and in the purchasing office. Because the thing that Wayne knows is that 35 years can get reduced down to 22 years for good behavior and, well... That's what Wayne is determined to do. His prison career is going so well that he is transferred from Sing Sing to Clinton Prison, located in Dannemora, New York, still proclaiming his innocence to anyone who will listen. No appeal works, but after 22 years, in December 1965, Wayne is released from Dannemora for good behavior. He's given a prison-issue suit and a fedora, and off you go, Wayne. He's deported back to Canada with the condition to please, please never, ever return to the United States. His son, not anymore Wayne Jr., by this time is 23, again with the whole new name, and a degree from Harvard, but also a fortune that had increased to about $15 million. Wayne will call his son and explain that he just can't go down to New York, but would sure like for his son to come visit him in Canada Wayne Jr. does not make this trip. There is a letter delivered to Wayne Sr. from an attorney pretty soon after that that threatens legal action if Wayne ever contacts his son again. Once Wayne arrives back in Canada, he just can't stand it anymore. He needs a tailored suit and still possesses enough charm and sex appeal that he can canoodle it with the older ladies. And again, Wayne now has quite a reputation as a lady killer. Back in Toronto, Wayne will at this time kind of forsake the male part of the gigolo and focus exclusively on the ladies who are more than happy to give this convicted murderer a place to land and all the support he needs, financial and otherwise. The real score that Wayne makes at this time is attracting the attention of Barbara Hamilton. Barbara Hamilton is a much-beloved Canadian character actress often referred to as the funniest woman in Canada. Dunn will write, Hamilton loved Lonergan madly for the 14 years of their romance, although she too on occasion could abuse him in public, especially when she was drunk. He took it. He always took it from the people who kept him. Hamilton would even introduce him to friends as the lady killer, and sometimes she called him Lil, short for live-in lover. Barbara will make it a condition of any interview that she gives that Wayne's name is never to be brought up. And well, Barbara loves him, protects him. She'll even nurse Wayne when he gets cancer right up to his death in January 1986. Barbara is devastated by the loss of her lover, and she'll say this about him after his death. Oh, he was handsome as a prince. 
He was the most kind, gentle, and wonderful person I have ever known. It's a fairly stark contrast from the impression that his first wife, I think, would give if she could. I'm going to go ahead and close this story with the final paragraph from Dominic Dunn about this case. I feel like it is some astute and insightful writing here to conclude his reporting of this tragedy. Dunn writes, Somewhere, Wayne Lonergan's son may be reading this article. He was a year and a half old when his father killed his mother in 1943, so he would be 58 today. I didn't try to track him down. Children of a parent who kills their other parent lead dreadful lives. Every day, someone points at them and says their mother killed their father, which the sons of Anne Woodward had to endure, or their father killed their mother, which the children of O.J. Simpson have had and will have to bear. Ultimately, the tragic Woodward sons committed suicide, both by defenestration and the Simpson children in sharing their father's pariah existence have lost out on their childhood. Wayne Lonergan's son escaped that fate. His grandmother did a first-rate job keeping him out of the public eye. If his name had not appeared in his father's obituary in the New York Times on January 3, 1986, he would have remained totally forgotten. I think he made a very wise decision when he declined to meet his father after he was released from prison. A life without memories is not such a bad thing when the alternative could have been a litany of denials of guilt and requests for money. What a case, my friends. Thank you so much for tuning in today to the Cafe Society scandal that rocked New York in the 40s. I sure do appreciate you listening to Done and Done. We'll be back next week with more continuing coverage from our New York state of crime season. Big love to y'all. Until we meet again, keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at Done and Done Podcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.